Let's uh, bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these truths. God, that our, our sins, no matter how vast they are, are outweighed and overpowered by your mercy. That you would show kindness to us. That you would love us, God. And despite all we've done, despite our desire to keep it up, as the case may be, that you love us. And that you save us and that you unite us with, our, with yourself. God, we, I, I pray that we would never cease to be thankful for that. That we would never cease to wonder about that. And Father, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would open our eyes to the inheritance that you've given us, that you would open our eyes and our hearts in our ears to the hope that is set before us. And may we grasp a little bit more of the height and the depth and the breadth of your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's great speculation and maybe you don't know about this debate among historians as to the origins of copper wire, but one popular argument is that it was two Dutchmen fighting over a penny. <laughs> and I, I learned in my time living among the Dutch and observing their practices many things, uh, a couple of which I've incorporated into my own life, and, and one of those, namely, is uh, the desire to get things at a really good value. And I, I heard someone say, maybe this is just a Midwestern thing, that you cannot compliment a Midwestern person on a, anything they own without them then immediately telling you what a great value they got on it. Like, oh, you wouldn't believe the deal I got on this. Even if it wasn't a deal, they will tell you how great of a deal it was, and I've taken that drive for the deal to online shopping. And, and you have to be careful because marketing is a real thing, and it can be very deceptive. And so you, what you do is you, you line things up and you compare them, and, and then, if you're really savvy, you go into the customer reviews, and you, and you start digging deep into that wormhole. But again, you have to be careful, uh, as this quote I found on the internet points out, you can't believe everything you read on the internet said by the great Abraham Lincoln. Um, and in, in product descriptions, this is especially true because you, you start searching for a product. This happened to me actually last Christmas. I was looking, my dad wanted a chainsaw for Christmas. And so I thought, yeah, that'd be a great idea because maybe one day I can inherit it. And I, I've always dreamed of owning my own chainsaw. So I went to buy him a chainsaw, and um, 
I found out they can be really expensive, but I found a good deal on one, and it said new, and all these other things that indicated it was new, and when it came, it was indeed refurbished. And uh, because people lie on the internet, and we, we need to weed out what the genuine offers are and what the false offers are. And I think when John is writing this letter to the people, he is really urging them as they are. Let you imagine in the Amazon pages when you, you have products that are guaranteeing the same thing, and you compare them so you see all that they have. And John is saying, the world is promising you happiness and prosperity, and God is promising you the same thing. And God is promising you a joy that you can't fathom. God is promising you a meaning you can't fathom. And God is offering love. The world is offering love. But I want you to look very closely at the love that God is offering you. And up to this point in 1 John, the first couple chapters, there's been a really heavy emphasis on light and darkness. And now the emphasis is, is gearing more towards the love of God and what that is. And he starts out, see, in verse 3-1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Look at this love. Behold this love. Try and figure out all you can about this love and as we hold up the love that God has and everything the world has to offer, what we can put a greater than symbol with the emphasis of God. God is greater than the world. And he's encouraging these believers to, to live in the light of God and also to abide in the love of God. And he doesn't do so by tearing down what the world has to offer as empty and shallow, although he accurately could say what the world has to offer will fail you, it will leave you dissatisfied, it will leave you more broken than you started. Instead, what he does is he just points supremely to the love of God. Look at the love of God. Look, look at this kind of love that God has given to us. It is grace-filled. It is glorious. And last week, as we were ending out chapter 2, it was the instruction to abide in God so we can have the confidence that is coming. And now, he is urging us, as someone who's confident in the coming of Christ because we're abiding in God, to examine the love of God. This grace-filled, glorious love that God gives us. And this, this, this grace-filled, glorious love of God isn't just given to us, but it gives us things, and it gives us a new title. Let's read all of this passage. Uh, 1 John 3, the first three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
So here we have the grace-filled, glorious love of God gives us a new title. It calls us children of God. There are some things that are really hard to overstate. And as lofty and as thoughtful of descriptions as we may give, we will never be able to overstate how great those things are. And God's love is one of those things. John, I don't believe John is trying to overstate God's love, but the claims he makes here, you could accuse him of that. If he were trying to overstate it, I don't think he was successful. But he certainly while not trying to overstate the love of God, he certainly elevates our gaze toward the grandeur of God's love. And he starts what with, with what would otherwise be impossible. That we are children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given you that you are now called a child of God and so you are. Think of this. Romans 8 takes a, a slightly different trajectory. It, it starts with the flesh, the, the mind that is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. You are hostile to God in your natural state. You are at odds with God. You're an enemy of God. In Ephesians, you are dead in your trespasses, following the prince of the power of the world following the, the flesh and its pleasures and desires. You're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you are before Christ. And you could take all of that identity, all of that fallenness, all of that rebellion, lay it aside and become a child of God. Romans 8 says, We did not receive a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we call out Abba Father. We, can, we call him by a familiar name, an affectionate name. That the love of God would take you from being an enemy of God to being his child with all the rights and privileges. His love unifies us with him. And as children, we experience the love of God. And we experience a love from God that is grace-filled. This love is given. It is not earned. It is not deserved. It is not based on potential of what we one day might be. It is completely given. Remember that it was God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. It wasn't God demonstrates his love for the, us in this, that while he saw great potential in you, Christ died for you. It was while you were at your worst. Unable to do anything to deserve it. He loves us despite us. He loves us contrary to who we are. It is grace-filled, and it is a pursuing love. We become children through adoption. Mike and Laura Beth would tell you they did not accidentally adopt a child. They weren't sitting around one day and like, oh man, we adopted. How did that happen? Like, there was a lot of thought, a lot of plan. It didn't go the way they thought it was. But when God adopts us, there is a lot of thought. There is a lot of planning. There is a lot of intention. He's not surprised by any of it. 
Think about this. If you're here this morning and you're a believer that you've put your faith in Christ, that think about this, that while you were sinning, God had all the plans already laid out for his adoption of you. While you were rebelling, he's saying they're rebelling now, they're going to be my child. And if you're here this morning, you have not put your faith in Christ, you're curious about Christ, you're curious about God, know that through Christ, God can adopt you to be his child. And that it wouldn't have happened by accident, but it would happen because he loves you. In a grace-filled way, not in a way that you've earned. He loves you. God, the creator of the universe, loves you. He took, I'm speaking to us as believers, we who were enemies of God, and he made us his children. So it is grace-filled love that we experience from God. It is a pursuing love we experience from God. And it is a generous love we experience from God. Because he doesn't just make us children so we can do his chores. I remember a day I was shoveling snow. And our oldest was just a baby and thinking, boy, in this many number of years, I might have someone who can shovel some of this snow for me. That was a great thought. God did not adopt you as his child so you could shovel the snow. He adopted you as his child so you could be in his family, so you could receive his love. Romans 8 says, We did not receive a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption, and we are co-heirs with Christ. We have become an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. You have received a royal status as a child of the king, and you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. We are saved to show the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. You know, someone, there's someone in this world that knows exactly down to the dollar and cent how much money Jeff Bezos has, and someone else who knows down to the dollar and cent how much money Warren Buffett has, but God's richness and grace is immeasurable. And he lavishes it on his children. But he doesn't end there. He says, we have become children of God, so we are adding this emphatic statement, you are children of God now. You're not, if you're saved, you're not waiting to become a children, child of God. You are a child of God. And the reason why the world does not know us as Christians is that it did not know him. Because we have become children of God, we have received a new nationality, a new home, a new identity. And all of this newness makes us foreign to the world. We live as exiles in this world. The world's culture is no longer our culture. The world's values are no longer our values. Its goals are no longer our goals. Its system is no longer our system because we belong in heaven. Heaven is our home, and from it we await our Savior. We are children of God. Through Jesus being our Lord and Savior, and that alienates us from the world. 
When a person puts their faith in Christ, it changes them at the soul level. And that change is noticed. It's noticed by believers. It's noticed by non-believers. And for believers, it's this collective journey of we are all in different ways, in different parts of who we are, at different rates. We are all being conformed into the likeness of God. One day we'll reach that in fullness through Christ. And for the world, what they see is we are progressively becoming more distant from their values. And there's a pushback to that. And I think this should point us to two things really clearly. One, it should point us to why we're rejected. So that when we are rejected by the world for, for whatever it is related to our following Christ, that we say, well, this is normal. I expected this. Jesus said, if they hate me, they will hate you. And he said that the night he was betrayed to be crucified. So I'm sure the next day the disciples were like, oh, man, if they did that to him. You know, there's a freak out mode there. So it should remind us of why we are rejected, why we don't fit, why we sometimes feel like a square peg in a round hole. But look at this. They, the world does not know him, uh, does not know us. Um, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So as we're rejected, it should be a reminder that the world doesn't know God and it needs to. So here's my hope, is that as we face rejection, in whatever form it comes in, the various forms of, of, of mistreatment we may have as Christians, I hope that as that happens, it builds in you a compassion that they are doing this because they don't know God. They are not rejecting me as a person. They are rejecting me as a citizen of heaven because they don't know my king and they need to know my king. They need to know that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They need to know the love of God. They are outside the love of God right now, and they need to know it. And so hopefully it would motivate you. As the grace-filled, glorious love of God gives us a new title, it also gives us a blessed hope. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. I love how he reiterates the identity of Christ as the identity that we have in Christ as being children of God. He does it three times. We are children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. So we are God's children, and that comes with perks. We are co-heirs in Christ. And he says, we are God's children now. But now doesn't always feel great. Now we experience loneliness and sickness. Our backs go out. We face rejection and sometimes even persecution for our faith. Now Parents, we watch our kids struggle. We watch them make hard choices that we know there will be consequences for. Now we face mistreatment. Now we deal with uncertainty about our income or our future. But there's something coming that has not yet appeared. 
And what we will be in fullness is not yet. But it will. When He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This is important to know. We as believers go through our life. This is not the way it will always be. One day it will be much, much better. Infinitely better. We are God's children now. And we have the benefit of being God's children now. But we have not yet experienced the full richness of that. Like we will in heaven. David Jackman, who you've heard me quote before, as a good Englishman, uses a very English example of this. He says, what we must remember is that the world has an end point. History is working towards a climax when Jesus will appear. This future fact is both, great ho- is both a great hope and a great stimulus. The Prince of Wales, as heir to the throne, lives already in the light of what he will be one day. He does not yet possess his full inheritance, but his whole life has been and is shaped by it. One day we shall be like Jesus, changed into his likeness. Meanwhile, we live today in the enjoyment of the privileges of grace as his adopted children, knowing that one day we need to have nothing to fear and nothing to hide, knowing that our future, knowing our future does give us confidence. But it does not, and I would say should not, make Christians complacent. In the midst of all the nows, we can live in complete security, knowing what will one day be. As the world moves at the fickleness of the market, we can be steady, knowing that my treasure lies in heaven. As leaders change and political tides ebb and flow, we can be secure knowing that Jesus is on the throne and the, the nations are but dust on the scales to him. Our citizenship is in heaven and we have confidence for that and we await our Savior. And if you ask people in this room who have been walking with Jesus for 40 years plus, how they have experienced the love of God on earth, they would go on talking and talking and talking. That they have experienced the love of God, they've experienced the benefit of being God's children in the already. But they would also talk about the not yet. And they would talk about the greatness that is to come. In Philippians 3, Paul says that our our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that decay, our lowly bodies that have pulled muscles that need parts replaced, our lowly bodies that get cancer, our lowly bodies that go bald, our lowly bodies that name it with whatever you're struggling with, that have body parts that hurt when you get out of bed in the morning. Our lowly bodies will be transformed. To be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We will be like him. We should live with the end in mind. 
We live this life on earth, not having to fear the future, because we know that the future holds Christ's return, our unity with Him, and the glorification of those who follow Him. We live with the end in mind that we will be with Him. Our, our church lost a dear brother this week as Don Thompson passed away. And there's a lot of people that Don loves who have gone to heaven before him. And I'm not sure what it'll be like when, when we go to heaven, what that moment of walking into glory will be. But a lot of times on earth we say, oh, they're in heaven, now they can finally see this person they love. Now they can finally see, and maybe it's a parent who's gone before them, a friend, a spouse, a child who's gone before them. They're finally reunited with this person, and we imagine heaven being like this great backyard barbecue. It's like a family reunion without the weird stuff. But I, don't you think, as excited as we may be to, to be reunited with loved ones who have gone before us, that will pale in comparison to the day we get to see our Savior. That we walk into heaven and we see Jesus. And I love my family. And I know there's people in heaven that, that I, yeah, it'll be great to be reunited with them. I anticipate there's going to be a moment in heaven where I really kind of forget they're there. And I really in the, in the most brotherly, affectionate way possible, don't care because my Savior is there. And Jesus is on the throne and I can, I can worship Him face to face. I can see Him face to face. I can see Him as He is. I can join the angels singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the one who hung on the cross will be sitting on a throne. And that'll be good. And that'll be the ultimate. And so this grace-filled, glorious love of God that gives us a new title, gives us a blessed hope, it also gives us a change that starts now. There's a lot of not yet in front of us in terms of God's promises. We think of the already and the not yet. We already live as children of, children of God. We are not yet at home in heaven. But there's also a lot of the already that's completely accessible to us that we are still pursuing. And when we think of the already not yet, I'm already saved, I'm already a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, I've not yet received it in its fullness. Let's not assume we've completely arrived at all of the already. But let's keep pushing towards the Lord. Keep pushing to be more like Him. You are a new creation who is growing to be more like God. And, and Paul, when he's writing to Corinthians and telling them that they are new creations... He also says in Corinthians, he lists out a variety of, of 
sinful characteristics, sinful practices, idolaters, drunkards, sexual immoral, uh, immorality, and more. And then he says, and these, this is who you used to be. Think for a moment about your life. Think, think about what's going on, what you're struggling with. And, think about, and I want you to realize that as you follow Jesus, there will come today where that's no longer true of you. Maybe you're really wrestling with greed or unforgiveness or lust or just, just deceptive talk that you just, you lie. And you don't like that about yourself. As you follow Jesus and you're made more and more into his likeness, there's going to come the day where that's no longer true about you. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him, Jesus, who hopes in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, purifies himself as the Lord is pure. We are readying ourselves for heaven. And part of readying ourselves for heaven is the purification of our souls. And I know that this is work that God does, but we have a part in it. Because we need to repent. There's a discipline to walking with the Lord. There's a submission in our hearts to God. I think there's two great motivators in in our being purified. One is that we don't have to wait to heaven to experience greater unity with God. That greater unity with God can happen now as we walk more closely with Him, as we grow in our purity, as we grow in our personal holiness. And two, that as we are readying ourselves for heaven, our destination determines our behavior. If somebody's destination is the summit of Everest, they do a lot of work in their behavior, in their diet, in their exercise, in their financial life, to make sure that that happens. Our destination is heaven. Let's ready ourselves. Let's make ourselves pure as he is pure. And I love that he says that we purify ourselves. Because if I'm going to be purified, it means at one point I was completely filthy. It means that all the sin in my past is there And it's okay that it's in my past because I'm purifying myself. I'm being made pure. That's getting cleaned out. And as we look at the process of purification, I think it happens, let's look at two main ways that it happens. First is by straining. Think of the Brita water filter. You pour in water, it comes out supposedly cleaner. The whole thing could be a hoax. But at least tastes a little different. So we purify by straining out the impurities. This is our repentance. As we go to God and we confess our sin, as you're, if you're trying to grow in this, I, I want you to write down this verse reference. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. And I want you to pray this regularly. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
God, search every single part of my heart and mind. And if there's anything in, in me that makes you grieve, point it out to me and then lead me in the way of everlasting life. And let God point those things out to you and start straining them out. And the other way is through crucible. You think of the idea of purifying gold or silver where you melt it down and remove the impurities off the top. You melt it in a crucible and following God, even when it's hard, has this effect. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Submit to God with a soft heart through the trials that you're going through. He is teaching you. He is refining you. Let the impurities be taken away. It's not always pleasant, but the end is so good. The end is so good as we are purified, even as our God is pure. This grace-filled, glorious love of God. It gives us a new title. It gives us a blessed hope. It starts changing us now. And I want you to know that it is accessible. Because God sent a son. This is the love he gives us. And we have this reminder set before us down here that this is the love that God gives us. This is the kind of love that at great cost to himself, he makes his love accessible. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he died. God did something to the temple. There was a part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, that only a high priest could go in. And God took the curtain, separating that from the rest of the people, and he tore it from top to bottom, saying, I'm here. My love is available. I'm coming to you. My dwelling place is with you. My new temple is your heart. And I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. His love is accessible through the work of Christ on the cross. As those who are going to come and lead us in communion, come forward, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you love us so much, that you love us with this great love, that you would die for us that while we were still sinners, that you would make a covenant with us who were completely unworthy that you would make us your children, that you would make us citizens of heaven, that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, we thank you for this love. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.